All right. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Um, this is going to be a fun night. We are going to talk about a really scary horror film, kind of like we do every week. Um, if you're new to watching our show, uh, this is a place where we sing the praises of good horror movies. Uh, and some of the movies are a little dark, I must admit, which is why when we sing those praises, we usually sing uh, a dark song. No, but worst pun ever. I'm working on these puns, guys. I can't, I'm, I'm not, not perfect with my puns. I'm trying. Um, so, so the film we're going to be discussing tonight is A Dark Song. Uh, and this movie, in my mind, is actually one of the best horror films to come out of 2017. To me, so I'm really curious what everyone else thinks about this. It's an independent Irish horror film. Uh, and I don't think we've touched on any Irish films up until this point. Um, so let's kind of just dive right in and talk about uh, A Dark Song. Um, this is a film about essentially a middle-aged woman named Sophia who's grieving the death of her young son or her murdered son. I guess he's not young anymore if he's murdered. Uh, by Who was killed in an apparent like cult ritual, right? And so she does what any grieving mother would do in this case. Uh, she rents a secluded house, hires an occultist, and performs a six-month-long ritual in order to talk to her guardian angel and enact revenge on those who've killed her son. And we all know what that's like. Clearly, we've all been there. That's the logical thing you do. Uh, you know, Shara talks to her guardian angel at least once a week. We all know that. Ben, Ben's guardian angel is Black Phillip. That's why he's not here tonight. He's hanging out with him. We all do this. So this film essentially is, it, it covers the depth of this ritual, the things that it takes in order to get to see your guardian angel, sort of the mental strain and the physical strain that Sophia has to endure. And uh, and the impatience that she has with the occultist that she's hired named Solomon, and we'll get into that. But this is, um, to me, this is a deeply uh, atmospheric and yet at the same time kind of claustrophobic movie, like which is sort of weird. Usually atmospheric films that I enjoy have a broader setting that allows the film to take bigger breaths. But like this one, the vast majority of it takes place uh, in a house. And I think the entirety of this film was actually done in like 20 days. I think the whole thing was shot in less than a month. So it's a great chamber piece. It's definitely a kind of isolation film, but the setting in which the isolation takes place, um, the tone and the feel is very dark and very haunting. Uh, you know, the reliance on jump scares in this movie is very minimal and the scenes where they do happen, I think are fantastic. So it's peppered perfectly. But really, this is one of those horror movies that that sort of explores something fundamental through the vehicle of the genre. And that's usually my first indication that it has the potential to be a great horror movie, right? It's through the vehicle of uh, things like witchcraft and occultism that you get to explore essentially fundamental human vices and virtues, things like um, revenge and forgiveness, right? So it's not a mindless horror film. It actually has a, a certain degree of depth to it, right? And the demonic and occultic elements are really a means to an end in this movie. And to me, that's that's part of what makes a good horror film, right? Uh, the supernatural stuff is really secondary to the capacity to enact revenge or to forgive in light of uh, the horror of losing a child. So when we think of Sophia, Sophia is deeply motivated by a vice, right? She's consumed with it. She wants to punish those who've killed her son, uh, you know, punish with a capital P. And I think what she has to go through in order to see her guardian angel and to punish those who have wronged her is kind of a picture of how harboring that kind of negative emotion, that kind of vengeful, I'm gonna get my pound of flesh sort of mindset, how that's psychologically and spiritually taxing on a person. You know, uh, th there's an anxiety in this film that's palpable and I think that's why I dug it so much. So anyway, before I continue to ramble throughout the evening, um, what it, let's kick it off. What did you guys, what did you guys think of the film? Anybody? 
I'll take a shot, I suppose. Um, I thought, yeah, it, was, it is a very good film. Um, it's in terms of the, the craft and the composition, cinematography, uh, the, the, the music, the acting, you know, on, on, on the technical dimensions, it's, it, it's very well done. Uh, it, you, you can tell it is sort of done on the cheap, but it's not a film that requires much more than that. I think it, you know, it does a lot with what it has. Um, and I think you, you nailed the themes uh, uh, just right, Noah, the, the, the theme of vengeance versus forgiveness. Um, is definitely uh, a, a powering one. Uh, there's also, I think I, you can add there, a, a obsession, um, a, you know, sort of compulsion, um, losing sight of the things that, that you care about while you're pursuing your goals. But also one more, which I think you didn't touch on, which for me was, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of the film. And it kind of got dropped in the final act, which was I was somewhat disappointed about. But the second act, almost entirely, is about... Uh, 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 abuse, you know, it's about the abuse that she is willing to tolerate at the hands of, of uh, the conjurer. And, you know, for a while there, I thought the film was basically going to be just sort of like a morality play on like abusive relationships, on how people get involved in situations where people, other, they let other people do terrible things to them because somehow they think it's going to be worth it in some capacity. And so I, th I thought it was going to be some sort of allegory for that. And I, again, for a while, I think it was. And it was really neat when it was doing it. I feel like it could have taken that to the next level, but I was sort of, I was sort of pleasantly surprised in some ways that they didn't because it didn't go where I was expecting it to be. The, 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 the final act really caught me off guard. It, 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 you know, it wasn't that twist ending per se, but it, it definitely wasn't what I was expecting. And that's, uh, you know, it's always nice for me when, you know, again, when I'm sort of plotting the, the film in my own head and imagining, okay, if I were writing this, you know, uh, where would I take this? And then it does something that I, I don't anticipate. I usually tend to, to appreciate that. And so, so on, on, on all these levels, I think the film is a definite success. Yeah, one of the biggest things I want to pursue with you guys, and I'll, I'll, I'll hand this over first before we pursue it, is how you guys felt about the end. The end is the most divisive part of this movie, right? Where she sees her guardian angel. That threw me for a loop. And there are certain people when I, that I know have seen this movie who thought that was amazing and loved it and thought it was a, a, a just a fantastic way to end the movie. And there's others that are like, dude, you had all these opportunities to go another route, but you didn't do it. And this, they didn't like the CGI. So I don't want to get into that now, but uh, I'm very curious to hear how you guys, how you guys kind of uh, thought about that. What about Sharon and Antonio? What'd you guys think of the film overall? Um, I, I love the film. I agree with almost everything you guys have said. Um, the only thing I want, really want to add is I want some kind of a, a button on my phone that has that dubstep cello sound where I could just randomly like throw it in there at a dramatic moment when I'm having conversations with people. <laughs> that was like every single time one of those, those sounds happened, I was like, oh shit, oh shit. And I, I actually felt the hairs prickle on the back of my neck from just a noise. Um, and I felt like it was this, um, this weird psychological effect that the movie had on me where a noise scared the shit out of me. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of other stuff, um, made me feel feelings. I like seeing how abused this woman was, all the stuff she was going through. I, it was a little triggering for me to be honest. Um, but it also showed how much she cared about achieving this thing, you know? And I think that was absolutely necessary for storytelling to see her go through all this stuff. Um, I think the part that really first started to creep me out is when she's sitting there, um, you know, saying all of the stuff in another language and she's like peeing on herself. And I'm like, okay, we're in for an interesting <laughs> movie here. So, um, 
but no, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was pretty cool and very pretty, and considering the budget and the time, it turned out looking really good. I've seen movies with, you know, bigger budgets that look like garbage, so someone behind it knew what they were doing. Yeah, for me, it's really weird. There's something about, because this uh, this is one that I selected. I, a lot of the films that I select are done very uh, quickly, and they're done on low budget, I'm noticing. So like Creep, right? And, and, and then this film, and I think there's a couple others too that I've selected. I kind of like ones that are isolationary, where it's maybe two characters exploring like a, a, a deep issue together, and it's it doesn't typically require too much of a budget, I think. You can just get a couple people in a dark room and create a really good horror film, to me, right? Uh, is that your idea of a party? Is just you that and is, one of your friends just dude, like... Dude, uh, my, my favorite place to hang out is at speakeasies that are dark and in a corner and they're hidden and, you know, like 15 people are allowed at a time. That My wife and I do that all the time and it probably speaks to why I like this genre so much. So yes, to answer your question, yes, absolutely. What about you, Antonio? What did you think of the movie overall? Um... I have I had kind of the same reaction to it that I have to books by Robert Heinlein, the science fiction author. Um, Heinlein uh, is you know very well respected author. Uh, you know did a lot of uh, works that people are still you know sort of crunching through today. Uh, created some really memorable characters. Um, to me, I find Heinlein to be in terms of craftsmanship one of the greatest expositors of, of the American English. Um, he's an, an amazing, amazing writer from a technical standpoint. From plot perspective, I find that he comes up with really interesting kind of original concepts. And for the first two thirds of all of his books, you're just on the ed absolute edge of your seat. You're just like, oh my God, what is he gonna do next with this idea? Oh, he's you know delving into so many interesting philosophical concepts. And then usually in the latter third of the of the work, it kind of deviates in a direction that you didn't expect and sort of deflates a little bit and ends not on a terrible note, but on one that's a little bit disappointing considering that the, all the stuff that got built up in the first two thirds. And that was kind of my reaction to this movie. Um, it's visually brilliant. It's uh, it got great sound editing. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, um, particularly for the shoestring budget, it's a wonderful example of how to make a movie look good and make really effective use of the resources that you have available to you. Um, so from a craftsmanship standpoint, it's an amazing movie. The performances are really solid. The editing is very solid. All that stuff is good. Um, I liked the first two thirds of the movie a lot in terms of the themes that it explored. The ending, I actually did like the guardian angel part, but I didn't like the, the resolution of the themes at the very end. Um, I think that there, I think it, it's a pretty, it, it was pretty plebeian the way that they ended it after such an interesting buildup. It was kind of the ending that you would have expected from like a, you know, a standard big budget movie. And so I felt like that was kind of a little bit of a cop out. Um, but overall I thought it was a really cool movie and, um, and I really enjoyed, um, in particular, you know, I, I'm, I come from a background, I'm an atheist now, of course, but I come from a background of of Eastern Orthodoxy. And in the Orthodox tradition, there's a great emphasis on ascesis and on ascetic endeavor in order to achieve spiritual goals. And um, this movie really, more than any movie I've ever seen before, uh, emphasizes what it's like to have an ascetic mindset, what, what it's like to really be devoted to the ritual and the and 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 the, the the need to purge yourself in order to make it efficacious. This movie really more than any other captures what it's like to do that as a as a you know 
basically fanatical religious believer for, for lack of a better term. Yeah, for those that don't know, uh, Antonio has actually done the Abermalin procedure, I think three times, Antonio, successfully. Is that right? Three times? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, successfully um, twice out of the three times. <laughs> a you know, better than Joseph Solomon. Actually, it's interesting, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the movies that, that this, it, particularly given the way that it ended, one of the movies that this really reminded me of was the kind of C-grade um, uh, sort of uh, horror sci-fi sci comic book mix, uh, Constantine. Did you all ever see Constantine with Keanu Reeves? Um, this movie is kind of like the low-budget version, the low-budget indie version of Constantine in some ways. You know, Constantine is also about this kind of obsession, the, the ne need to make great sacrifices in order to move mighty spiritual forces, um, you know, this kind of redemptive ending from something that started out kind of like vengeful and bitter. Um, it all kind of tracks pretty in a pretty interesting way. It, they both also have the bathtub drowning scene, so. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you, you talked a little bit about the aesthetic part with, with Sophia. One of the things, uh, I saw this movie twice, and the second time I noticed something about uh, Joseph Solomon that I didn't notice the first time, and that is he's kind of like an occultic scientist. Like, his his whole thing was to explore, right? He assumes, because he knows, so he doesn't really assume, but he knows that this, there's this realm, this otherworldly realm that's, that's um, it, it, to some degree, tangible and can harm us, and you can see it, and you can touch it. And so he's an explorer in a lot of ways, right? He's kind of an asshole, right? That's one of, that's one of the downsides about the film is that I felt like sometimes his uh, interaction with Sophia was a bit, it was a bit forced, like the the anger between, he had all these outbursts and stuff, and I just didn't feel like that did anything for the film. Didn't really make anything more important to me. I guess if we if we continue it down Garrett's line of reasoning, it certainly, it, it got to the point where it became an issue of like power and compliance and, and a, a, a kind of very toxic relationship. But for the most part, I feel like the movie would have done well without that. So that kind of, that kind of bothered me. But, but I got more out of Joseph Solomon the second time around watching it. Um, I, I realized he was a little bit more of a complex character um, than I than I first realized. Uh, there's a point in the movie where he says that science describes the least of what something is, and magic's magic's describes the boundless mystery. Um, and I, I just didn't remember that going on. I thought, wow, you know, this is a guy who's out to learn. It's kind of a reversal. It's it's Sophia's wanting to get to the heart of the magic, and uh, for her own personal reasons, and then. Joseph is doing it as an explorer, as an explorer in this other realm that we only have a glimpse into, which I thought was kind of cool. So their motivations are very interesting. Yeah, and he explicitly says that that his motivation is to know, you know, and he's kind of surprised when Sophia doesn't immediately kind of jive with with the idea because he supposes sort of a, a connection there. Um, but it, it's it, actually that that sort of describes to me a lot of religious journey and a lot of mystic journey is uh, I, I feel like a lot of people who make who have tr significant trajectories in their spiritual journeys over their lives, let's say, um, are driven by this same sort of impulse to know, where they feel like, you know, yes, this is this is what I'm told, this is what I'm doing, you know, it feels good, it feels like it's the truth, etc. But but I want to see more. I want to have see as I want to touch as much of the of the elephant as I can, to to use the old analogy. Um, and and you understand that there's going to be times when you get trod underfoot by endeavoring to do this. It's a painful and you know ascetic process. 
Um, but you do it anyway because you have this overriding need to know, to feel it. Um, another thing that really struck me as interesting about the movie, sort of along that, along those same lines, is that the movie is very Gnostic. You know, they explicitly, explicitly at one point, um, Solomon says that this is a Gnostic procedure as opposed to a, a, an, another kind. And um, Sophia, of course, is the is the name of the chief Gnostic deity in most of the uh, in most of the Gnostic uh, mythologies. And one of the interesting things about Sophia and the Gnostic mythologies is that she is a she she goes through a journey through the circles of heaven, um, and and her her she she has a problem where her her will is flawed in, in some fundamental way. She desires the wrong thing, and that's what causes all the chaos and sort of opens Pandora's box within the world. And Sophia's on this sort of journey through through the heavens and so on, and through through these various eons. And when, when all is fulfilled, Sophia will be complete again and will, you know, sort of reunite with the, with the divine uh, unity and, um, and, you know, make all things new, so to speak. And so this movie very much tracks that, that theology if you actually look at what happens to Sophia, how she starts out with, you know, a flawed intention and makes this, you know, severe ascetic journey that kind of culminates in her ascension to a higher understanding. And I think, I mean, I want to come back again to the, to the you know, if you will, the gender politics of, of, of the piece, because I, I, there, there have been films similar to this in a number of different ways, but I don't think, I don't think I've ever seen one where, where the gender relationship was male, female. And so it's almost always female, female or male, male. And you know, the, the, you know, Noah, you commented on how abrasive, uh, uh, his personality was. And I, I thought that was absolutely essential because I think one of the things that distinguishes this film from others of its kind is uh, the, the respective motivations of the, the, the parties. I mean, the, 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 the motivation to get in touch with the dead, to speak with the dead, of course, is as old as the hills. And, you know, and it was huge in like, Victorian England, for example, where a lot of these sorts of films are, are set. Um, but the... Uh, you know, usually the the one person is either a fraud. You know, the 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 conjurer is either a fraud or a con man, or alternatively, you know, they're they're you know uh, some sort of like you know they're the one warning the person off. You know, it's like you don't want to see this. You don't want to uh, contact the dead. It's not worth it. And Solomon's not like that at all. I mean, Solomon definitely warns her. You know, he, he says, "Look, this is gonna gonna cost you dearly." But he's he's by no means sort of concerned with her for her sake. He is concerned entirely with her for his own sake. Uh, he wants her to participate in the ritual so he can get what he wants. And he knows that he can't get what he wants unless she's fully committed. Um, so his total selfishness and self-absorbedness was, uh, to me, a very shocking and powerful aspect of the film. It made his character and his performance, I think, really, really sold it for me and, and, and made it much more interesting. Um, and it made the dynamic between the two of them very, very fresh. Um, it, it, it was, I think, the dynamic that set the, the film apart from other films of the, of the genre. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to his abrasiveness and her ignorance and screwing things up, I think it was great having characters that were so flawed, um, but still having it flow in the way that it needed to go. Um, it, a lot of people fail at writing flawed characters. Um, it's usually cliche or it's just like fits way too much in a trope. And this was, like you said, fresh. It, was, it wasn't cliche at all. Um, it was obvious what their motivations were. Um, with her, she has huge insecurities about talking about the truth of what her intentions are. And with him, he was obviously being selfish and wanting to fulfill his desires. 
Um, so their, their flaws and how it screwed things up were great, but his reaction when her fuck up actually hurt him, you know, because he had to drown her in the tub and then he gets hurt. He didn't even get mad at her, really. He was just like, yep, this is what I get for hurting you, I guess. Like, I was like, dude, you just got stabbed. And he's like, well, do you think this do you sucks. Think that was the karmic revenge, Shayra? Do you, do you think that was the, comic re the karmic revenge for the drowning? Because I thought that that might be the karmic revenge for the uh, sex session in terms of hurting. I oh, think that would make so much more sense, right? And I've been trying, I was trying to figure that out too because he talked about harming her. Um, she almost seemed just kind of annoyed about being almost killed in the tub. She's like, oh, I could have died. But the thing that really set her over, sent her over the edge was what he did to her in the bedroom. And honestly, that was the most uncomfortable scene for me. So I, I think you have something there. That was an annoying scene where I was like, okay, maybe I want to turn this movie off because he's getting on the levels of creepy. Um, so yeah, I, I like that. That's actually really important. That's actually really important, Antonio. You're right. I think because there's a part in the movie where he talks about the purity of the ritual and how the motivations have to be pure, right? And I, I think you can get away with your motivations being pure even when you do something ruthless, like kill someone in order to get them to be brought back. But it's not like that when you fap because you feel like you need to and you sort of take advantage of someone. The motivation there isn't as pure. That's really interesting. I, up until this point, had thought that this was a result of him drowning her, but it very well could be that his motivation was much less pure when he was doing that. It's more carnal. That yeah. makes so much more sense. And not only that, with him, uh, you know, acting the way he did, he seemed to be like, yeah, I screwed up. But the funny part is his main anger and annoyance was with her not keeping in line with what you're supposed to do. This is how it's supposed to be done. And I really think that is the only place where he went away from what they're supposed to do. Because even the bathtub thing helped. So, yeah, that's where he screwed up. In yeah, my that's opinion. interesting. Yeah, their relationship um, was so strong. This goes back to, to Garrett's point, which I guess we'll keep exploring. I, like, their relationship was so... Uh, their dynamic was so... Um, back and forth and so power oriented that there was a part, there was a good amount of the, the first part of watching this film where I wondered if there was anything supernatural at all. <laughs> and if this was just like two people, a, a guy taking advantage of, a man taking advantage of a woman who's frail and going through all of these 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 issues. Um, and the trailer really kind of makes you think that that's possible. If you ever see the trailer, it makes you think that there's a good chance that that's going on. Um, so when anything supernatural actually happened, that to me was almost like a, a twist <laughs> to me. I was like, oh, okay, well, he's not entirely bad shit. Um, so I, I think that's, um, that is a, a testament to how well-developed their relationship was, um, explored, I think, and how powerful their, um, the way that they conversed with one another was. It, it sort of made you think, is this the entirety of the film? You know what I mean? So let's um, let's go to the Abermalin procedure. I know someone has probably looked up the actual historical stuff related to the Abermalin procedure. Antonio has. Tell us about the Abermalin procedure. So, I mean, it, it, there's in short terms, it's fairly accurate to what's mentioned in the movie. Um, you know, you're supposed to. It, it can take up to 18 months. It takes a minimum of six months. 
Um, it, the oldest uh, procedure is described in a manuscript that I think dates back to 1608, but I think the major ones that are referred to today date to the mid-1700s, like 1725, 1730. Um, it was originally written in German. It's a, it, it is actually a Kabbalistic work, ultimately, contrary to what the movie sort of suggests about it. And the ultimate goal of this extended procedure is indeed to get you to converse with your guardian angel um, after appropriately purifying yourself to be able to receive its its conversation and presence. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, this ritual was performed by Aleister Crowley fairly early in his um, uh, spiritual development, I guess we'll call it. And... Um, and it was enormously influential on him, and he believed that that uh, summoning your guardian angel and conversing with your guardian angel should be sort of a, a foundational practice of all of his initiates. And so initially, he uh, recommended the use of the Abramalan ritual for doing this, since that was the way that he claimed to have done it. But he eventually abbreviated the procedure significantly and introduced some other sort of aspects of looking at it um, in his own system which he said were just as efficacious, but without the extremely extended timeline and rigorous purification that the original ritual prescribes. So I'm curious because, again, I know nothing about the, the ritual itself, but one of the things that I found fascinating about the film was that, you know, even though it is invoking this notion of the guardian angel, there seemed to be nothing like sort of Christological about it. I mean, there, there, there was no sort of, you know, Christ imagery. There was no sort of invocation of, you know, God in his heaven or anything like that. Um, so uh, I, I'm curious to to what extent, if any, you know, uh, is this is this ritual grounded outside a sort of traditional monotheistic uh, uh, theology about God and the afterlife? It's really more Judaic than it is Christian in, in its sort of foundational assumption, which is why there isn't any sort of Christological emphasis. Um, but, but there is um, an emphasis on, you know, the the sort of divine chain of being, which you do see in, in Judaism as well, where, you know, there's God, but the, but God appoints administrators for all of his works, you know, and that's why you have a guardian angel to begin with is because, you know, that is, that's the spiritual entity that God has appointed to oversee your particular life, you know, and as you get higher up in the, in the celestial hierarchies, you have, you know, administrators that are responsible for running planets and galaxies and, you know, massive scales of, of endeavor. And so, um, you know, these higher Kabbalistic rituals are intended to to uh, enable you to sort of summon the power of these entities and, and commune with them. Um, one of the things that I really appreciated about it, other than its relative um, occult. Oh, one other thing about the Abramalan that's um, very true to life in, in the film is also that it's extensively based on the use of word squares. Um, you know, like abracadabra, how you can make like triangles and shit out of it, where it all spells the same thing in all directions. Um, that's a that's a key component of the Abramalan ritual in, in real life, as in the movie. Um, one of the things that I thought was really cool about about um, their use of this particular sort of setup for the occult, where not only is the occult fairly realistic. But I think that it also um, sort of tracks something that's true of of actual spiritual endeavor, and that is that um, you know falling to your knees and saying the sinner's prayer doesn't actually have any magic power, so to speak. Um, that real spiritual endeavor is something that you do almost as an isolating practice. That is, it it, it is intense and it takes an incredible amount of study and it takes an incredible amount of commitment 
You know, um, this is very a very if we're going to sort of classify the spirituality of this movie, it's it's in some ways a very Theravadan spirituality, where the idea is that that you know you really have to sweat things out, you have to physically sweat things out, you have to mentally sweat things out, you have to interpersonally sweat things out in order to make any kind of measurable spiritual progress. And even the spiritual progress that you make, that you eke out through these arduous rituals, through these arduous uh, ascetic endeavors, even that is, you, you can make one little mistake and it just fucks the whole thing up and it sets you right back to square one. And then you have to go do the arduous ass ritual again and again and again and just eke your way back to where you were. And it's just the tiniest deviation can completely destroy the whole, the tiniest flaw can, can, can the tiniest imperfection in in intention can completely destroy the whole endeavor. Um, I think that's fairly true to real life, to, to the, the intensity that's required to make real actual changes in your spiritual life, for lack of a better term. Yeah, there, uh, there's a scene that this reminds me, all of this reminds me of actually, um, in talking about like, is this, um, you know, is this a particularly a Catholic or evangelical or Protestant notion? Um, and that's the scene where she's talking, I think, to her sister at the uh, cafe at the beginning of the movie. And um, she says, I believe in God. And Sophia says, what's that supposed to mean? And I think there's something that she means by that. I think she's actually talking about like the idea of faith without action. It's almost like a James in the Bible sort of thing that, that like I'm doing, I'm about to go do something. I don't just believe in God. I'm about to go do something. It's almost like faith without works is dead. But I think it may also help us understand the applicability of this ritual uh, outside of, or in a broader context of religiosity, that it's not particular, a particularly Catholic thing. And that may be why he actually asks her, are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? There may be tweaks, little things here or there that need to be changed, but it looks like the applicability is something uh, of this ritual in the film, at least is something that is above and beyond the labels that you put on or, or, or the, the sort of particulars of the religion that you adhere to, which I thought was pretty interesting. So I, I wanna I wanna throw in something that confused me about this movie, um, and maybe I was the only one. I read some stuff on Reddit where uh, other <laughs> other people, uh, quite pl plebeian people, have uh, felt the same way I did. So it makes me feel bad about this. But uh, so I originally interpreted the ending of this when I saw the film the first time. I got the distinct impression, for some reason, that um, that she was the one who killed her son. Um, I, I felt like there was uh, the way this movie ended with the body going out into the water. I mean, I now think that that was Joseph Solomon and that was the ending sequence. But there was something in this movie that made me think that she that that she was up to something. I mean, she already sort of um, uh, showed that she could be a liar, right? That she would lie through and through, even through a ritual that was, if you made a mistake, would result or could result in your death or someone else's death, like Joseph Solomon. So it's not past her to lie even in these scenarios. And it makes me wonder if what really had happened is that she killed her son and was trying to find a way to forgive herself, which is maybe why the film is called A Dark Song. Um, there's problems with that. I mean, clearly when she goes to her guardian angel, her guardian angel seems happy to see her as though she's doing the right thing. So I don't think that that entirely makes sense. But I'm not entirely sure why. I wasn't the only one that felt this way. Um, there's a lot of people who thought that that the film kind of gave you maybe a little bit of a hint that this wasn't as pure at the end. 
um, as you may have thought. Did any of you get anything like that vibe during the film? I, I got that vibe, but for me, it wasn't about um, about her being actually culpable, but it was about survivor's guilt. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I got the vibe too, and I was so glad they didn't go there. You know, I was yeah. I was really afraid it was going to be yeah she you know I, either she killed him or Solomon killed the kid, and I'm glad that they sort of you know addressed that, but didn't go in that direction because that would have felt hackneyed and cliche. That oh, yeah, I, formulaic. I've seen that film before. I don't want to see it again. It's done well before, but it's done to death. Um, and I think I think it, you know I. I'm not sure if the filmmakers were tempted to go that, or if they were just, you know, red herring us. But uh, I, I, I had a little bit of loss of patience when I thought they were headed in that direction, and was very pleased when they ultimately ended up not going in that direction. One, one thing I do want to ask you guys as to as to your thoughts um, is, in the movie, her goal is one of her major goals, and it's and you know it's explicitly referred to a number of times, is that. Um, she's she wants to speak to her dead son you know this is, it's explicitly phrased that pretty much in that in those terms you know i i need to speak to my dead son um and solomon likewise sort of refers to this goal several times you know you you want i promise that you will be able to speak to your son i promise etc um that never actually happened like did, did anybody notice that that never actually happened that she never that she never actually did end up in touch with any with anybody who was dead and now is speaking to to other people that yeah. that 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 whole subthread that all that effort never culminated in any actual contact with any deceased anything like but that, that makes sense power. that, that yeah. makes sense because he says i promise you you will talk to your son if you do everything that i say and she doesn't she disobeys him, and I think that's that's why that never comes to fruition. Uh, because you know, it, it, it was a, it was a contract, it was a trade off, right? Do everything I say, you'll talk to your dead son. She she didn't follow his rules, so it didn't happen. Yeah, there's a tremendously Orphean strain in this whole uh, in this whole work, honestly. I I see a correlation in what you guys both brought up, though. The main the reason why Noah probably interpreted the movie a different way the first viewing, and the reason why you're wondering why she didn't see the son or talk to the son. It's goes with the same thing. She was a liar. Like from the very beginning, she was lying. I don't know if she was lying to him or herself or both, but she was lying and she wasn't being honest about what was going on. And I think that's that flaw screwed a lot of things up. So, um, I mean, I guess when you screw up in that way, maybe you don't get all the things you wanted. But her guardian angel, you know, he did pop up and help her out with something. She still got a wish, <laughs> I guess is what you get from him. Is it is it a wish? Like, what is it exactly? Like, Yeah, it sounds like that? that. It sounds like you get a wish. Are we going to talk about the guardian angel now? Because I, I, I had <laughs> thoughts I wanted yeah. to share, yeah, but yeah, I don't know where to gun. It's coming up a lot. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about the guardian angel. So, first off, can I say how fantastic the visual was? I mean, I, I saw that and I was literally riveted. I mean, I think that they achieved in me precisely the effect of awe and reverence that they were going for. And and again on in so many ways. I mean, again, the, the, the computer effects were wonderful, the design was wonderful, uh, the lighting was was wonderful. And it also again to repeat the comment I made earlier, it was not what I, even when I was imagining I was gonna see a guardian angel, even when I thought about that, it did not look at all like what I was imagining. So everything about that caught me by surprise and I, th I, I thought that they hit the pitch 
perfect emotional tone uh, with the reveal of that guardian angel there at the end. That was just, I loved, loved, loved that guardian angel. It's very statuesque. I, my problem with it, it's a personal thing. I watched a lot of Queer as Folk. I've watched the series many, many times. And so when I saw the gold sparkly confetti stuff falling from the sky, it made me think of the gay clubs. And then this like hot guys like painted up. I was like, this is the gayest thing I've ever <laughs> seen. Like her guardian angel is like a gay god in a in a club. So yeah, I was like, laughing. You, you, you never see you never see an ugly guardian angel. They're always good looking guardian angels. There's there's something going on here. That uh, Garrett, that I, I'm right there with you. It, um, the best part of the film to me, the most, the, the most awestruck I was was when the guardian angel showed up, and there it, it was almost like a Lord of the Rings moment for God's sakes. It was almost like I felt like in a different film. I was like, because he's he's much taller, right? He's like the size of the room, and so and I was so I, I told this to Shara. I was watching it on my projector in my room in the dark. So I have a, a 92 inch image, and it's I'm in the dark and I'm under my covers. And I have a glass of wine and told Chera it's like I was basically going through menopause or something. I don't know. It's like exactly what you would do if you were menopausal, like sitting there with a glass of wine in the dark. It's nice and cool. You got your AC on. I don't know. Whatever. So I'm watching. Were you like, like, ooh, he's hot. Yeah, that's, I, that was the only thing missing. The only thing missing was that statement. So I'm watching it and that scene happens. And I just, I mean, it totally threw me for a loop. It was so unexpected. And I, it was like they went there, really? Like that's what I was thinking in my head. I was like, they really went there. That is amazing. But I... This is one of those movies where my expectation, because I know myself, is to not want that kind of ending. So this is why this film is unique to me, is I like endings that uh, I typically go for films that have a kind of nihilistic or a somber ending. Uh, I can think of many films in my list that have that sort of thing in them, but this one ended optimistically and I still enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed the end. Um, and and you know what? That's not uh, as much as the angel is an important, amazing, and awesome, you know, uh, striking moment of the movie. The other thing is what happens right after that. After she pushes off Joseph Solomon into the you know into the water, the very last sequence is her driving away. And I'm thinking to myself, why are they showing me this? And her eyes get a little more intense as she's driving. And I'm like, what? I have no idea what's going on. I'm thinking there's going to be like an M Night Shyamalan twist or something. And all you see is a car go past her the other way and she breathes heavily. And I took that to mean it was the first time where she's driven and she felt like I'm not tempted to jerk the wheel into another car and kill myself. No, no, that's not how I saw that at all. Ah, okay, let's that. talk about this. The way I interpreted that was she's driving away and she realizes she's not gonna come and loop right back to the house. Ah, that's how you got, ah, oh, I didn't even think about it, okay. Person. She saw another person, and that's how she knew she wasn't lost anymore. Ah, and and since yeah, I had the same interpretation. And again, one of the, my few complaints about the film, granted, I think I suppose given the way it was set up, they kind of had to do this. But the whole you can't escape the house, you walk away from the house, you just end up back at the house. Again, that's one of the cliches of this genre that I've seen over and over and over again, and again, kind of tired of it. So, but it's it's one of the few parts of the film where I felt it fell into cliche. But at the same time, again, I'm thinking about it from the point of view of a writer, right? If I'm writing it, you know, we, there, you, there needs to be a shift at some point where it's clear that it's not entirely in her head, you know, where, where you know, it, it's, she hasn't gone completely crazy. And that's like, I think, one of the first real indications that, okay, there is something actually supernatural going on here. She was told she wouldn't be able to leave the house, and now we have verification of that. Um, 
And so, and then to, get, to quickly throw it back to the guardian angel, I am curious how much of this film's budget was put into that one scene, that one special effect. I, mean, I feel like I'm willing to bet it's like more than half the budget for just that visual because that, that's one of the few real special effects that they had. And, you know, again, if, if there was any doubt uh, with, with a loop back as to whether or not there actually is something supernatural, spiritual going on or whether she's just crazy, I mean, that to me, again, it, it's, there was no ambiguity there in the film, right? The film clearly wants you to think this is not just in her head. This is real. This is happening. That is one of the reasons why this film has stood out to me over a shit ton of other horror movies at this point. Um, one of the complaints I've had about movies, I did a video about this years ago, about how skeptics are portrayed in the media. Um, and I used Drag Me to Hell as a, as a jumping off point to talk about this, where you have a character who's a skeptic throughout all of this, and finally at the end, he's like, whoa, I was a dumbass. With this film, it doesn't have a character that's constantly like, that's not real, that's not real. You're that person. And so you're the person who has the aha moment at the end where you're like, oh shit, there really is, that is a real guardian angel. Okay, interesting. And, and I like that you were the skeptic that was proven wrong. And I love that turn of it. It's a great way of story storytelling. And um, it's telling you to open your mind without being too preachy about it, right? So I, I enjoy that. I, I thought that was a great twist. Yeah, it's one, one of the things that I liked about the movie uh, sort of, you know, in its optimistic tone is the notion that at the end of the day, there is magic out there. Um, but it's really, and the reason that you did that, that science doesn't observe it or interact with it is because it's really, really, really difficult to do right. <laughs> and really, really easy to just go get lost in a hell dimension. I guess it's kind of the opposite of the craft, where these teenage girls who don't even know what they're doing are just like, ah, let's change our hair color. Let's just mess with everything in the elements. This one's like, no, bitch. This takes a lot of time and effort, and you pretty much have to give your entire self to do this stuff. So it's not that easy. Um, I thought that was wonderful, because the idea that it should be hard is... It's, it goes with the tradition of a lot of religious stuff, and I think it's important to and, add that. And also, also the notion that it kind of cycles around, you know, that, that you may end up going through the process fruitlessly a number of times and then realizing that it's something inside you that you've been doing wrong, not the ritual so per se. You know, there's something inside you that has your intention has been impure or what have you. And that now the third time or a fifth time or whatever, you're going through this particular cycle. Now you're ready to realize the truth that was just flying past you the other four times. Yeah, there's a kind of respect, right? I think in, in, in looking at um, or in talking about or filming or, in, or just exploring the idea of magic is something that has to be earned. That's not something that's so easy. Oh, the same thing in Buffy, right? I can I can I can actually do Buffy references now. Now that I'm watching it, all right. Uh, for those that don't know, I just am now finishing Buffy for the first time, which is a blasphemy. Like, anyway. Uh, so yeah. So so it's same sort of thing in Buffy. Everything's so fast and and it's cheap in a certain sense. If it's just something anyone can do fast, right? Some you know, earning it is it's really the whole part of this movie right, is, is earning it. I mean, everything in this movie is a sense of purification and a slow earning of, of the purification. When we think of Sophia, we think of, you know, the process of her learning to forgive and going through all of these 
uh, rituals. And to some extent, maybe this is my criticism of the film, um, is that, you know, good, I think like the, the second third of the movie is, is uh, so much about the ritual that I think some other things could have been explored that they didn't go into. Maybe more of the relationship between Joseph and Sophia, I would have liked to have seen that. I felt like the ritual was so covered and was so um, heavily described in film that um, it, it, I sort of lost some of the other things maybe I'd like to see. Um, that's not too much of a criticism because I think the, the movie really is all about sort of purification and about you know a woman's grief and getting to the end of it and, and what it takes to get there. And I, th I think it's just much more poetic maybe to focus on the film in that sense. Well, in terms of the resolution, maybe I think that's true, but I think it, I think in terms of everything up to the resolution, it has, it has another cast to it. And that is, um, you know, sort of in a nod to Garrett here, um, that, that of Sisyphus, right? The, 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 one of the core notions in this film is, you know, that up until the end, you don't know if what she's working toward is going to pay off in any kind of, like, you don't know if she's just literally lost in hell forever you know, at one point. And so the idea is that, that, it, that maybe that's what faith is about, you know, that the idea that you're striving through this, um, this process that you believe in, and even if it doesn't yield a result, you keep on going because, because you believe in the importance of that process. Um, and like I said, there's, there's a Sisyphean aspect to most of this movie where, where we're going around and around the same kind of arduous tasks over and over and over again and seeing nothing. And what if we're just going to be, end up doing this forever? You know, um, at the point where she stepped outside, I thought maybe we were going to start seeing like temporal recursions. Like she finds herself back at the beginning of the ritual and start and ends up doing it like all over again, like forever or what have you. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously I was cued to think that that might be one of the resolutions by the fact that they do have this sort of like cyclic yet futile, uh, process that builds and builds and builds until finally at the collapse of everything, it's revealed there is actually a nugget to be mined out of all that effort, that it's not entirely Sisyphean, that you can actually carve something out of that, of pushing that boulder up again and again and again. Now, like uh, again, I've, I've mentioned several, like you know, at the times the other films of this genre. Uh, 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 one film which I, I'm a big fan of, which we should probably put on the list to watch, is the, the Others with Nicole Kidman. And I think one of the things that this the, that that film and this one has in common again is this sense of isolation in the house, the mist out and around the area. Um, it, it, it's 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 a wonderful aesthetic for creating this sense of isolation. And 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 doing a lot with a little. And again, like you said, there's there's some of that Sisyphusian sort of elements in that and uh, and the others as well. Um, and again, I didn't mind it so much in in the others because you know I hadn't quite been done to death at that point. But I again, I was glad like they didn't do like the temporal recursion. Again, not because that, that can't be done. Well, it can it has, but it would have felt like a, a, a twice told tale at that point. Um, and again, I, I once more, not to repeat myself, but I was really glad at how much this film avoided uh, repeating the tropes of, of films past. Yeah, there. I know. I I don't know if all of you have seen Triangle. We definitely uh, Ben Carruth and I did a did a, a sit down for it. But this is the opposite of that film. I won't blow it for you since you guys haven't seen it. And it's to me, it's the the most underrated horror film I, I think ever ever made. Um, but uh, this explores kind of uh, just take a very similar story 
throw it in the Bermuda Triangle, and then flip some of the things we're talking about, and you have triangle. I, I think it's done well still in triangle. I, we, we, there's probably some tropes in there, but I think it's it's. There's also some twists that make those tropes worthwhile. But anyway, um, yeah, I uh, this this movie was one of those films, guys, that like has something deeper than what than what the 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 scary things convey, right? So like witchcraft and magic and stuff, um, and seeing uh, you know turning your head this way when Sophia. There's only like a couple scenes like this where Sophia has the candle open and it blows out, and you see, and that that in and of itself is actually a trope. Uh, you see that in a lot of horror movies. Um, those sorts of things were all like means to an end. I'm noticing for me that horror films that do that, that they use the scary things to describe something next or something other or something more fundamental. Those are the horror films that typically make me think and make me scared. I mean, because we can think of many horror films where it sort of ends with that jump scare where the candle goes out, right? Or, or uh, you know, it, it, there's nothing deeper in a lot of horror films than these things. But this one took, like, just very core fundamental human emotions and human capacities and built an entire, and, and essentially weaved an entire story around that only using the tools of the occult and of magic. So I'm noticing that the horror movies I like have these sorts of things in them. I guess they're easier to um, to appreciate and to talk about, right? A, 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 someone, Shayra brought Drag Me to Hell. Drag Me to Hell is actually one of my favorite horror films of all time, but it, it, it I doubt, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong, but I doubt we'd be able to have the same level of discussion in a film like Drag Me to Hell as we did for A Dark Song. Hey, there's something like more fundamental here that we were able to talk about. Um, and I, I feel like all of our films have sort of these things. There's like this really core thing that's central to the human uh, story. And it kind of starts with that. And then a narrative is weaved around that. That's sort of the vibe I'm getting for a lot of films that we've been doing. And I, they seem to be ones I'm selecting, uh, which I think is interesting. Um, but it would be great to maybe throw in a horror film that doesn't have that and see where we rate it, see how we score it, see what we think about it. Um, I, I, I really struggled with Drag Me to Hell putting that in here because I wanted to, but I'm like, what are we going to talk about? Uh, we did this with The Loved Ones. I remember that, and I think Antonio and Shayra were here. It's one of those films that doesn't have much to appreciate. It's just you either enjoy it or you hate it. Um, anyway, I, I was exploring something there. I feel like these horror movies have something a little, something that comes first, and then everything's built from them, right? Something very basic. Like this, this is a revenge film. This is about losing that thing that eats away at you in the center of your soul, right? I mean, just think of people who get consumed with revenge. Right? I mean, how many morals, how many stories are built like this, right? Like Shakespearean stories and, and just it's, it's branded into our culture, into our being, these sort of fundamental things. And yet we're still weaving narratives around them. We're still making movies about something like the virtues of forgiveness and, um, and the vice of, of revenge. And I want it, I want what's mine, that sort of thing. I, I find that very interesting. So to that point, I'm curious for your guys' thoughts, because one of the things which I, I, I think I sort of forgave or glossed over when I watched the film, but somewhat in retrospect, I'm kind of a little more curious about now. I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether they pulled it off or not. The, the, the scene with the guardian angel where she comes up and says, I want to forgive. Did you feel that that transition was motivated well enough from like in, from her internal psychological standpoint? Because I mean, it definitely, I think was sort of the right move. You know, it, it, it was it was interesting, and it, it it brought the themes together, sort of everything full circle. Um, but from her point of view, after everything she had gone through, after all the the torment and the suffering that she went through, 
is that actually, did, did it make sense from her point of view that she would ask for that, do you think? I, I almost want to expand on that with another question, too. Um, if she would have gone for vengeance like she originally had planned, would everything have would everything have come together the way it did at the end? Would she have been able to escape all the demons and everything? The, the implication is no, because they only let her go when she says, I'm sorry. And so... And so it's, um, I guess, I guess the the lesson that, that the movie's trying to convey because of I'm sorry and then the juxtaposition of forgiveness is that it's in the power to, is that the first step toward being able to forgive is being able to sort of, is being able to apologize, you know? <laughs> and then, and then you can forgive, you can develop the power to forgive from that, I guess is, is kind of where the movie wants to go. Um, I did find that to be one of the weaker elements of the movie because, um, you know, when you ask yourself, what's scary about this movie? Well, most of what's scary about this movie is not, you know, demon looking things or bumps in the night or certainly not jump scares or broken windows or anything like that. What's scary fundamentally about the movie is, is the way that obsession strips you of your boundaries and your good judgment <laughs> you know that's the scary part is watching this woman just do these insane things progressively and and submit herself to them again and submit herself to humiliation and etc 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 in just the most the most profound kind of degradations in, in order to achieve this 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 deeply antisocial goal you know it's not like she's you know doing all this to build wells in africa you know she's doing all this because she wants revenge you know very specifically and uh and that's caused her to to completely cut herself off from humanity in so many ways um and that's the scary part the scary part is watching her lose herself in this um for the most part um and uh, honestly, I think the movie is most effective at being a horror movie when it when it leans on that element, when it leans on the psychological element of it, rather than when it goes, oh, you blew out the candle and now there's something in the shadows behind you. Much less effective. I, I kind of have to disagree. I think, I mean, thematically, you know, you make strong points, uh, but the scariest thing in this film for me wasn't the obsession uh, or the psychological portrait, which were indeed very well done and scary, but hands down for me the scariest thing, the fucking kid, man. I can't believe we've gone for almost 50 minutes, for almost a full hour now, and we haven't even brought up those scenes when the kid is on the I have it written down, but yeah, go for it. Yeah, the, I mean, that scares the fucking shit. And, and you're a mom, Sherry, so like, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not a father. <laughs> I died inside at that part. I died inside, because I was thinking if Kylie had died in such a horrific way, and she was like, mommy, help me. I'm like, oh my, I, uh, no that would be where all the nope would happen. And I would just be like, this has to end now. We cannot do this any further. Yeah. And, and again, so I thought that was a phenomenal scene. It was scary as hell. And, and, it, and it comes back again to a theme. I'll think of a lot of the films that we, we talk about touch on this. And it's, it's, it's that just kids themselves in a certain way are just scary. You know, I mean, kids can be terrifying in the sense that they're, they're this massive responsibility and they're fragile and they can die. But at the same time, they also have this kind of alien psychology in some ways. And that little innocent voice that they have always seems like it could be hiding something sinister. And like, you know, 
kids are kind of like natural born sociopaths because like, you know, their capacity to empathize isn't necessarily fully developed just yet. Um, and so you add all that together and this, and yeah, I mean, I, and again, the fact that you could only hear him and not see him and, and the, the, the specific words they had him say, you know, I'm, I'm not really your son, you know, I'm just a voice in your head or whatever the line was. Oh, so good. So well done. So yeah, it was, yeah. What, but, but I want to know what you guys think about the dog situation. What, all that was like why was he in this room why did he need her to open the door why did there need to be a threat to him for her to try to open the door like what was trying to be achieved like what would have happened if she would have opened the door why were they why was he like don't open it something's gonna happen like what would have happened what what was that it was scary but i don't know what it was and maybe you guys know typologically it's a it's a black dog which is a common element in celtic mythology i i'm pretty sure um it's it's you know something that it, it's it's a demonic entity that appears in the on the moors and you know it's it's what they based off of the the hound of the baskervilles off of you know is the notion of the black dog this this is dog that can this phantom dog that sort of appears in the moors and is huge and you know rips you to shreds and disappears back into the moors that's a, I mean, for, for me, what I just thought it was, it's just, you know, they kind of basic that they needed to kick in her, her protective maternal instinct, right? Put the kid in danger. She wants to go to him to protect him. Um, and so that was the, you know, the, the spirit or the entity, whatever's way of trying to leverage her to do something stupid, which she knew she shouldn't do. But you know, again, what mother can, can resist the sound of her child in danger you have to go help you have to right it's just was was it the black dog that was making the sound of the kid i again i wasn't entirely sure what it was i mean i don't think it was the black dog that makes the sound of the kid i think something was making both the sound of the black dog and the kid and again it wasn't the kid that much is clear what i wasn't clear on is whether it was some sort of independent malevolent spirit or if it was somehow a projection of her own psyche and their own sort of hostile negative attitudes that she was holding in some way I think that's uh, that was something that was d deliberately vague and unclear, and yeah, I, I like it. I, I think it's it's good. I don't necessarily want that question to be answered. The idea that it was the dog that did it—I literally got goosebumps all over my arm when you said that. <laughs> it still scares the shit out of me. That is a good. That's a good sign, though. I, I like to know that I'm not completely numb to all these horror movies. <laughs> that. You should probably write a horror movie, Antonio. You'd fuck with my head. I know it. Yeah, come to think of it, Shayra, like this film has all of like your, this is your shtick, right? So one of the things, guys, in our last couple films, we started to realize that the films that make Shayra really scared are films where there is, a, there's a child, a, a supplanting of a parent, like so the, there was the exorcist. And then uh, Antonio, even in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, remember Shayra was like really freaked out about the idea of being replaced with like a pod. Remember being podified? We talked about that for a while. And this film kind of had something like like that too. It had that reaching out effect to a child and, and what you would do, maybe even illogically, because of the emotional pull that you you would have for your uh, for your kid. I, I again share, I think it's another reason to go see Triangle. I think I think you I, now I really think you'd like that. Um yeah, so this kind of had all the little hits for you. I, I I didn't think about that when I first uh, when I first watched it. It has two of the main elements that really messes with me. Um and, you know, the isolation stuff, I know that gets to you. Um, that doesn't get to me so much, but the idea that she could not escape and, and went around in a loop, that that did mess with me a whole lot. Like, and I knew it was coming, too. While she was walking, I'm like, she's in a loop. 
she's in a freaking loop. I know she's in a loop. And then when it happened, I was like, oh my God, she's in a loop. And it just, at the, that's one of the things this film does so well is just that slow burn to the, like, you just kind of know what's happening, but it's still slow. And you're like on the edge of your seat, like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then it happens. And you're like, oh my God, it's so good. Yeah, I this this uh, this movie is all about pace and tone. I mean, in that sense, I figured Antonio would dig it just because I feel like a lot of his films have that. Is I mean, they're all, almost all have that in there. Is like one of the central things. It's just a very slow burn, um, almost like The Witch. This film, in a lot of ways, reminded me of The Witch, um, in that sense. Although I guess The Witch may be a little slower. I don't know. Is The Witch slower? Then this movie, this is, a, this is a question for Garrett, because <laughs> this was one of the uh, criticisms Garrett had for The Witch. Wh which, I'm very curious to know which one you think was slower in terms of the, the tone and the pace. They're, they're both slow films, and I, 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 without a doubt, I think Dark Song was a better film than The Witch. Um, oh, wow, really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 was, I was disappointed, deeply disappointed in The Witch, um, in part because I felt you know, the, the, the dialogue and the, the dialect, which they tried to be authentic, I think actually backfired and inhibited any kind of connection or, or fear that I had because uh, it, it, it was it put such a wall between me and the characters. But another film, another time. Um, yep, yep, yep. So uh, as far as to which you know, again, which is slower, um, it's hard to say. I think you know, you know when you get emotionally invested in a film, it feels like it's moving along, even if it is technically slower so i i, I it, it, that's hard to answer because there's so much subjectivity involved um but uh i was far less i mean i was bored with the witch but i i i wasn't i never felt let down or like i wasn't engaged going through a dark song uh, uh it, it grabbed me pretty early on and it had me so never let me go so um i recently was studying about the pacing of of tv shows versus movies how there's certain beats that things hit like with a sitcom you really only have about two things that are happening there's an act one and act two there's a conflict and an issue and then it's resolved that's a basic sitcom you know beats that you look at um and with which with the witch it was um it didn't have that many beats you know it would be like just chilling out beat chilling out beat with this one it was like um it was like when you get scared and your heartbeat all of a sudden starts racing. So it was like, boom, 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 Like, you're just like, oh, crap. And then everything hits. And I think that that's why you keep on following along because it just keeps having these crazy beats near the end. By the time you get in the underground room where she's being tortured and her finger gets cut off, you're like, holy shit what is happening and I think that's what makes it a little bit more uh easier to sit through than the witch I think that's why people might like it better yeah there's kind of more of a payoff I mean I'm trying to really think if we if we think of the angel scene and we we and then we think of the, the the black phillip scene in the witch which one I feel like is more of a payoff like if I was to cash out which one would I cash out and I, I want to say a dark song just because of it, it, it there's an an awe moment, I think, in that. Whereas there's just a surprise in The Witch when you see Satan. I mean, it, yeah, I think A Dark Song has it, at least in that category. Um, we do have a question uh, from our, our friend Luna, who has been watching for the last couple of weeks. Um, she asks, um, why do you think that she, let me actually get the question here. Why do you think she tore the picture of her and her son? Was it, was it Sophia that tore the picture of her and her son, or was it Joseph Solomon? Do you guys remember? I thought it was Joseph Solomon, but it might have been Sophia. 
knows her. Why do you guys think she tore the picture? To me, it symbolized um, the the single-mindedness of her focus that that she was you know she was taking literally herself out of the picture and making it all about the sun and this honestly touches on one of the more interesting themes that i think that this movie shared with um, a lot of horror movies such as like the witch for example and that is the notion of um it, 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 there's a an anime called Full Metal Alchemist, where there's there's this notion called toka kokan, which mean which they translate as equivalent exchange, but it but it has kind of a Newtonian cast to it. It's basically you know for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. Everything that you do has a cost, has an equivalent cost, and um, and I think that this movie uh, emphasizes that sort of metaphysical notion pretty strongly. The idea that that you get what you put in. And that whatever you put in is, in some sense, what you're going to receive. You know, like, and for example, the 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 synchronicity of of um, Solomon being injured um, after he injured her um, has this you know notion of of you pay the cost of your action, um, and of course you know the various sufferings they they experience are also the result of of, of you know flaws, things that they're taking away from the process. Rather than adding to the process, um, and uh, and I think th and, and so ultimately I think that you you see that she's only restored after a tremendous amount of sacrifice. She has to invest a tremendous amount of herself. She has to lose a part of her, a literal part of herself, in order to achieve resolution. David Solomon has to die in order for her to restore her life, or not David Joseph Solomon has to die in order for her to uh, to restore her life. Um, and to that end, actually, I'd like to ask you guys a question. Uh, do you think Solomon got his wish? <laughs> he became infinitely invisible. You are a messed up person. <laughs> Damn. I guess so. I mean, his body even got hidden in a pond somewhere. Like, nobody's probably going to ever find him because it's out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that is complete invisibility. I mean, yeah, it's that's a great question, Antonio. Um, it's weird because I mean, it, it's it does sort of seem again to to not to go back to the idea of cliche, but to, you know, the it's the ironic granting of the wish, right? You 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 have the wish and you get your wish, but it's done in a way that actually undercuts the very thing that you want. Um, so if if he does get his wish, he gets it in a way, of course, which no doubt doesn't satisfy him, but. Uh, you know, such is the way of, of the dark magics, right? You know, when you uh, mess with forces that, you know, even he doesn't actually understand, uh, you can't really complain when they don't exactly hold to human expectations of fairness. Guys, there's an X-Files episode like this. Do you guys remember where the genie grants these trailer park idiot people the ability? Yeah, yeah, there it is. I see the nods. And, uh, and he, he goes invisible. He's like, I want invisibility. Crosses the street, gets hit by a semi or gets hit by a car, flies over into the side <laughs> and just flies start accumulating on him and you can't see him. It's just flies. <laughs> and and invisible. world peace, right? And then it, it, he, he exterminates everyone. He's the only human being left on the planet. I thought that was a great move, yeah. That's exactly what that reminded me of. Yeah, that th there, there was a book I... I think it was called The Wish Giver or something like that that we read when we were kids um, uh, that we were supposed to required reading in one of our elementary school classes. And I was like, I'm never, ever going to try to ask for a wish. I was scared of even wishing wells after that. 
I was like, I don't know what'll happen if it's granted. So well, I think it's the monkey's paw is the progenitor of that genre, right? I, I mean, yep. I'm not sure if it's the first one, but it's definitely like the archetypal example of, of the, 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 the wish gone awry. Yeah, although, I mean, it does, of course, date to the actual genie stories from way back in the day, you know, where they were actual actual wish-granting genies in the Thousand and One Nights and stuff like that. So I guess medieval Persian literature, I guess, is one of the earlier instances of this. Although I think there's parallels as far back as, like, Greek literature. I'm pretty sure you can find some, some classical literature where um, wishes end up going seriously awry. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's tickling something in the back of my head. Oh yeah, there's what, what's his name? The guy he he wishes for eternal life and he gets it, but he doesn't get eternal youth. So his body just continues to age. Oh, what's his name? Damn it! Oh, that's a, that was a that was a great one. Yeah. So you're telling me the dark song exists because of Greek mythology and other stories that were told from long, long ago, and the guardian angel's just basically a genie or some kind of god that grants wishes. That's great. <laughs> one of the neat things to to go back to sort of. Uh, Felate the guardian angel a bit more, but um, the the guardian angel. One of the things that was really neat about it is um, that something that's that's underemphasized in angelology and in depictions of angels in in modern media is that angels are not supposed to be human. They're supposed to be recognizably in human beings, alien beings of great majesty and power, often terrifying. And they're typically depicted in modern media as either cherubs or dudes in robes, basically with like wings sprouting out. And um, and so that's one of the things that I liked about this particular guardian angel. You know, he had a sense of scale um, and a sense and, and a sense that the form is symbolic. And that's one of the important things about angels as well in, in scriptural sources is that, you know, angels appearance is not intended to be to be a rigorously physical description. You know, they have eyes and wings covering things and chariot wheels of fire and and it's this very kind of psychedelic experience where where the angel is clear where the the elements are clearly supposed to stand in you know the wings are are you know its mobility and the fire is its power and so on and so the angel here you know is like leaning on this sword and he doesn't do anything with it the whole time he's just sitting there he doesn't he barely even moves you know, and the and his lips move, and it and but you hear no sound, but it shakes the entire house when he speaks. And again, you know, you get the sense that the lips aren't aren't necessary. It's it's just the the illusion of uh, that that that's convenient to the particular symbol of the moment. Um, and so that's I really liked that they that they were faithful to the uh, original sort of mythological sources in that regard. Um, and depicted him as, you know, sort of humanoid, but decisively inhuman overall, and with an appearance that that was grand, but obviously symbolic rather than intended to convey the specifics. Like this is this is what this dude does all the time. It was clearly not the vibe you're supposed to get off of that particular scene. Well, yeah, also he's big. He's yeah. really big, and uh, remember in the Bible, supposedly angels had sex with humans, and then they had these giant giants for children or whatever. So I got excited when he was big, because I was like, that makes sense. Maybe that's why we have giants that uh, existed in the Bible time. <laughs> so. Let, let's go ask Nephilim Free, see what he thinks. Uh, sorry, that's an inside joke. Uh, yeah, Luna actually said that when she was watching it, she thought it was Athena at first, as opposed to kind of a guardian angel. I can see that actually. Uh, it's a very different sort of uh, different sort of guardian angel. 
Um, I, this film could have really gone astray and it could have really messed up the ending if you wouldn't have looked at that angel and been in awe. So, I mean, think of how difficult that is just from a cinematic perspective that you've built everything up to this moment and you gotta, you gotta pay for it now. And I think this film, one of the, the things that I, uh, to me makes this film so far to me the best horror film of the year so far um, is being able to do that with a payoff. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that did not like seeing the angel that that would have thought that it would have been better to end in a, on a darker note. I mean, the film's called The Dark Song, right? A lot of people thought that that would. Have, do, do you guys empathize at all with that perspective? I, I like I like that they included the angel. Um, I think that that's uh, that that's the big payoff for the movie. Um, what I didn't like is that the the resolution was something as trite as she was really just trying to find peace in herself the whole time. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll accept that that this is a human story that we all need to hear and that we all experience for ourselves and blah blah blah. We need we need to remind ourselves that this process is possible. But it's not a very clever way to end the story. I thought I thought maybe she was she would think of some, you know, clever way to get things restored to the way they were before or, you know what I mean? I thought that there was going to be a slightly edgier direction that they were going to go rather than just tell me how I can move on with my life. And then he's like, wish granted, move on with your life, you know? Um, so I loved the guardian angel as a thematic element, um, but the conclusion of that scene and the conclusion of the movie, I thought was by far the weakest element of the movie. The movie spent so much time defying a lot of conventions in order to build toward that scene. And the two scenes that I thought were the weakest element were, were the right where she says, you know, I want the power to forgive. And then immediately before the guardian angel scene, that scene like in the basement where like she gets her finger chopped off and then suddenly decides that to like thrash around and say, I'm sorry and climb up the stairs. I thought that that was not, not well enough telegraphed, not well enough foreshadowed in the movie as to, you know, the process for, for finishing the ritual after you've fucked it up, you know? And the other thing that I want, uh, another question I want to ask all you guys is why do you think that he marked all his notebooks out? Come back to that question later. I want to start by disagreeing with you on the the forgiveness element. In a different film, I agree that would have come across as cliche, but it's precisely because the film has spent you know what is an hour and forty minutes up to that point, leading you in the exact opposite direction. This looks like it's a tragedy. This looks like it's going to end horribly. There, there's no way that she's getting out of this alive or with her sanity or whatever, she's gonna end up in hell. Everything you see is leading you in that direction. And again, the sort of the cliches of the genre suggest that. If it had ended with, again, a sort of dark, cynical, pessimistic ending, it would have felt, to me at least, again, like it's falling back on those cliches of the genre, which again, it's not that they're, they can't be done well, but it's just they've been done so many times already. I was glad that they did something which for me at least was unexpected. They, you know, not, again, not a twist ending per se, but uh, an ending which did not seem like it was going to follow from what they'd set up. But still, once they played it out, it made sense given everything that they had set it up. So what I was actually kind of hoping for, like, I, I completely agree with that. I agree that that an optimistic ending after the really pessimistic setup was was a great move. Um, where I disagree is that specifically making it about learning to forgive others and yourself and move on with your life. That was the element where it was weak. I thought that maybe, for example, she, it, it could have gone in a really interesting direction if what she had said is, you know, what is your wish? Well, my wish is that, um, you know, I complete I feel bad for, you know, basically killing 
Joseph Solomon. And so I want, I, I want him to be restored or something like that. You know, I, and, and I'll give up my son in order to take responsibility for this human being's life that I impacted to the point where now he's dead. You know, that, that might've been an interesting way of, of exploring that. And then, then you could still have the, the forgiveness element through a conversation that they have or what have you. But, um, but I think just making it about, you know, oh, just accept where you are in life and move on with your life. Um, I think was is the weakest possible message that an optimistic ending could be sending. A wasted wish. <laughs> That's that, that is a creative alternative ending, uh, Antonio. But it also and, and maybe this would work with it is again we were talking before about how Solomon maybe Solomon got his wish by being dead, and so now that he's brought back, maybe he resents her for taking away the one oh thing that he God. wanted. Can you imagine that? That would have been. David that's Solomon the. Has to go it's like with Buffy. That is such a Buffy thing because she was like so mad when they brought her back. She was like, "Why didn't you just let me be?" And she was depressed and just so fucked up over the fact that they brought her back. Yep. That Sorry, is the darkest. Spoilers. That is the darkest ending I can think of for a dark song. Is if she would have brought back Solomon, Joseph Solomon, and he would have been angry at her for that. That is the most fucked up thing I've ever heard. That is like the yeah. emotional equivalent. That's like the emotional equivalent of a Serbian film. What you just yeah, like, like, like he should have been resurrected and then she dies. Like she, the, the guardian angel takes her away or whatever. And then, you... and then, you, and then the, the film ends with not wow. Solomon being like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, Antonio, you are a dark person. I would have never, ever thought. I would have never thought of that. Wow. And he would have been brought back with all of his documents completely crossed out and messed up. <laughs> <laughs> he can't even use that stuff again. Like, joke's on you, motherfucker. Maybe that would be the ultimate revenge, though, for what he did to her with <laughs> the bedroom scene. It's like, that's what you get, bitch. So why did he cross his notebooks out? Yeah, why? I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe maybe he had his own he had his own uh, maybe revenge maybe it was the opposite of what was happening to her was happening to him and that he was getting resentful and revenge was starting to build up in him maybe that's part of the maybe that's part of the the the, the karmic element of the spell is that while she is learning to while she's being purified in order to have this end where she can learn to forgive he has to then reverse it by being vengeful and and marking out the 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 notebooks I don't know or keeping or somebody else from doing the rituals and knowing what to do and following in his footsteps and fucking it up the way he did because maybe yeah, he realized more... he fucked up and he was like, uh, I don't want to hurt anybody else. Let's yeah, make sure this is erased. Is that's it, true. Is it never clearly indicated that there was anything in the notebooks to begin with? Like, is it possible that he just had a bunch of inked out notebooks and was just making up a bunch of bullshit as he went along and then she just never realized it? And then eventually she looked in the books that he was using and realized, oh shit, there's nothing in there. I could swear we saw the books at some point, didn't we? I, I thought I remembered seeing them and seeing that there were actually things written in them. Am I misremembering that? I think we might have seen it a little bit. Um, yeah, I think they might have shown a couple things. I think we saw her looking in the books. I don't know if we saw exactly what was in them. Um, maybe there was little blips and bloops of stuff. But I, I'm pretty sure he all of a sudden marked it out because she seemed very shocked when she went to go look at it. She seemed to be like, what the... Wait, no, 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 because she knows she's, she's seen that, so. Now, I don't actually know, again, what to make of that, but one of the things which, you know, my personal reactions when that scene, one of the things which 
sort of in some ways frustrated me, but in a good way about Solomon's character was again this this desire to know, you know, to have all this knowledge, you know, again sort of you know, this this Luciferian kind of uh, thing, right? Um, I one of the things in my own sort of personal emotional journey over the last I don't know 20, 30 years or so has been sort of you know coming to terms with the fact that sometimes we don't get to know, you know, sometimes there are things that we want to know and want to understand. And in spite of any efforts, they still will remain forever beyond our grasp. Um, and so in some ways, I kind of, you know, sort of resented his own inability to be comfortable with, uh, with not knowing things. You know, I, I think that it's sort of an important aspect of life to get comfortable with the idea that you don't always get what you want. You don't always get to know. Um, and he never sort of had that realization, if you will, that comeuppance. So in some ways, I in the blacked out notebooks I saw again. I don't, I don't think this was happening for him. I don't think it's why he did it, but what it symbolized for me again was the idea of accept it. You know, you have to understand that there's some things you just don't get to know. See, I remember back when I was a kid, growing up with uh, very religious parents. Um, whenever I would ask questions, trying to understand some of the stories that they were telling me, I would ask, you know well, how do you know this? And they're like, oh, well, you're not going to actually know it until you die. Then you'll know all these things. All these, all these questions you have will be answered when you die. And that never satisfied me. That was always such an uncomfortable thing to say to me. I was like, no, I will figure this out. And I had this problem of always trying to figure everything out because I was not satisfied with that. Um, and then I found that once I was able to be honest about who I am and wh what my viewpoints are and, and be able to read more about uh, philosophy that is more similar to my viewpoint now, um, I can accept that I just don't know things. That's okay to not know things. I don't need to know it now, nor do I need to know it in an afterlife. Like, I, I don't know some stuff. I'd like to know it. I'll try to pursue, but I won't get so obsessive where I'll end up hurting myself, you know? And I think that's an important lesson to learn. Is to, you know, if you want to pursue knowledge, cool, but you don't have to go to such lengths just to know stuff. Yeah, it's kind of a both and, right? I mean, you 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 want to know all of the things in life that can be known, but where you can't know those things, you need to be okay with it, right? That That's, I think, the posture I think everyone here maybe would want to adopt. Um, no, I mean, I, the, 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 again, this, I've made videos about this in the past, but for me, it's not even so much about knowing. I mean, again, there's a value in the process and in the journey, but in the simply having of the knowledge, less so. Um, you know, that's there's a complicated sort of existential epistemological uh, story behind that, which I won't you know, get into because topic for for another day. But you know, again, it, it's 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 one thing that sort of frustrated me in a good way about his character was that he wanted the knowledge for its own sake. He clearly, in some way, I think, almost sort of resented that he had to go through all these, jump through all these hoops, and do all this shit. You know, if, if there was a shortcut to take. To the divine knowledge, he absolutely would have taken it. But he, one of the things he did accept was there was no such shortcut. He had to go through all the rituals of the months and months and months uh, in order to get there. And he resigned himself to that, um, but in, in a way in which he, under protest, you know, he was sort of bitter about it. And um, that's, again, to me, is in many ways just the exact opposite of where I sort of see myself. You know, for me, it is about the process. It's about the journey, not the destination of it. Yeah, I, I wrote this in the little section um, over here for us to look at, but it, it does kind of remind me just what you're saying is reminding me of 42 because there's this whole big journey of trying to figure out what is the meaning of life and then getting the answer that it's 42. It was so, like, what? <laughs> what? 
the hell does that mean? And it, and it, it brings up more questions. Uh, and, and it confuses and it's not satisfying. And I think it is about the journey. Which brings up another possible sort of twist, right? Is that Solomon gets the, the you know the forbidden knowledge that he wants, and it's mundane. You know, it's just like it's like a recipe for brownies or something like that. That's the secret, the mysteries of of, of the dark universe. Um, you know, what a, what a, a what a twist ending that would be. You know, one of the things I thought about is, um, uh, I think it's. It's probably important, and this could just be me reading a little too much into the film, like I did at the car scene at the end when you guys had a much more parsimonious explanation of it. But um, the 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 thing that gets her injury at the end of the film is not that she lost an ear or an eye or something. I mean, she lost a finger. The thing that is the the pointing that it's your fault. You did this to me. Your yeah, I know it. What it wasn't the the right finger, but it was a finger, Antonio. One of the digits. Damn it! Where you go, you. Uh, and I, I think that was important. I think that that signified really her, 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 the finality of her purification of learning to forgive. And, um, to me, I think something that simple is it may be trite. It may be used a lot in, in films, Antonio, but I find that it's an extremely powerful thing. Um, I, I, I think it's an important lesson. It, it may be a simple lesson, but some of the most simple lessons tend to be the most important in terms of like the broad array of human experience. And, um, I, you know, just the same, I'm thinking of the scene where she actually sees the angel and she's got blood all over her face and she's looking up and yeah, it seems so trite to be like, well, the thing I want, I did all this stuff and I have this one shot and this one wish. And the thing I want is something that other people would be able to do without even doing all of this. But I think that's the, that's the, 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 the measure of who she is. That's the capacity that people have. There's something there about being a person that I think is worth sitting there and being in awe of that she had to, that she was the sort of person who had to go through all of this to get to that sort of thing. I think that that's, I don't know. I find that to be beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and it is a good message to end a movie with. Um, I just wish it had been done a little more cleverly, you know, like for example, one, honestly, although I don't think it's a great movie in many respects to go back to Constantine. Does anybody remember how that movie ended? Like, yeah, the, the way it ends is... Oh, um, yeah, yeah, I do. Devil at, at the end of many adventures, the devil finally comes to take Keanu Reeves' soul away. And he's finally got him right where he wants him. And But Keanu Reeves has cleverly positioned himself to die in a self-sacrificial way. So as the devil, who, by the way, is brilliantly portrayed, he's portrayed as a man in a white suit with really black, nasty feet. Like, it's it's a great portrayal of the devil. Anyway... So as he begins to haul, you know, Keanu Reeves' soul down to hell, it, the, Keanu Reeves gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and finally the devil can't move him at all. And then Keanu Reeves' soul is slowly transported up into heaven, and Del realizes that he's been had, that he's been outsmarted, you know, and by, by this act of self-sacrifice. And, and, and then Keanu Reeves is going into heaven, and his, and his arms spread out in this, like, Christ-like image. And as he's spreading his arms out, he sort of looks over his shoulder and he sees the devil over his shoulder. And then like one of his hands like goes into <laughs> middle finger as he's like going into heaven. It's, it's a visually brilliant way to, to conclude that particular element of the movie. And uh, yeah, anyway, digression. M move over Schindler's list, you know? Yeah. That, that ending even gets more interesting as it goes along uh, where the devil's like, Oh yeah. And he decides to fuck with him back. I don't know if you remember, um, what the devil did there. I don't know if we should completely spoil that one, but um, 
I loved Constantine. I heard so much crap about that whenever I said I liked it. Um, I thought that every actor in there was so well uh, played, especially when it comes to um, the idea of being a fuck-up your whole life and then finally realizing, you know, I, I, I've been kind of a shithead. Maybe I need to just do something for humanity at the end. And um, I think there is a bit of an element to of that to Dark Song, you know, where, you know, she was... I think she was kind of a fuck up. I think that's why she needed to say, I'm sorry. I think she may have screwed up somewhere along the lines of protecting her son and maybe was blaming herself for stuff that happened. I, I, they didn't really go into what exactly happened, but I don't know how your son is sacrificed in a cult way. Like you, you'd have to feel like you fucked up in some way as a parent. Yeah. Didn't they, didn't they insinuate that she was with a man at the time or something like there was that she was, um, when I think the the ghost dog son or whatever the hell we're calling it was talking to her, it was almost like, why weren't you there? You were with a man or doing something. There was something like that. It was like a really quick thing. So there's almost a culpability thing that was floating around, I think. Um, yeah. and, and that's where, you know, I felt really bad for her as a character because I know that there are many times where things have happened, you know, as as a parent things have happened and I, I feel like I blame myself. Um, for instance, when I got in a fight with my neighbor because uh, she smacked another kid across the street and uh, I got in the way of that. I was like, you don't hit children, especially not your own children. What are you doing? Like, this isn't okay. And I got in the middle of it and she got mad and decided to um, poison our puppy that we had just got, six months old, poisoned our dog Whoa. in our backyard and my daughter had to watch me holding our puppy in my arms, blood and foam coming out of both ends. And I felt like I had completely fucked up as a parent because she had been experiencing this traumatic event at such a young age. And she drew pictures of like dogs with blood coming out of them and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I'm the worst parent ever. Like I, I shouldn't have gotten involved in something that didn't have anything to do with me. Um, and there was a lot of blame and a lot of questions about what I do as a parent and how it affects her. Um, so there was there were elements of this that made me feel an extreme amount of guilt again about past situations like is it really my fault that my neighbor did that no but maybe if i didn't do certain things that would have never happened you know what i mean yeah that's heavy yeah that's really heavy i, th I think the complexity of the situation is one that deserves a little bit of thought right um that it's uh there's probably more than one or two elements going on when we think about the death of a son or the you know a dog or anything that we're in ownership of. But really, when you think about losing a, a child, it's there's going to be no matter what, even if it's completely not your fault. I um I knew someone who um who had a son who uh, they didn't die but they fell into a coma simply by tripping, like just by tripping, walking down the street and tripping and hitting their head. It's like the most random thing that you can think of and you're holding hands with them and it's just something that like just just the way the world is right and even then you know they're like they're oh there's a movie like, like the jacket never never heard of it um never heard of it but there's uh, yeah so i mean the, the simplest thing can have the most complex sort of stuff underneath it right um you know i it was a huge strain on their marriage and as as you can imagine it would be so it's amazing how something so simple can have such a complex apparatus you know um that it's attached to um that's that's really heavy. We did have one more question before we close up shop uh, from someone, uh, Mr. Cam Cam, who has joined us before. And this is more of a general question about like this kind of film. 
Um, and he says, do you guys think that the increasing interest in occult themes in independent films like this one is an expression of our fears of religious extremism or any kind of extremism, or is it just a current trend? And then he says, or I think it's a he, um, I guess I'm curious if these kind of horror movies address any kind of fears that we have in the present day because uh, like films like The Witch or the idea of The Witch, I guess, appears to that kind of archaism as well, but people still seem to love it. What do you guys think? Well, I think both of them deal with the fact that the people you're closest to have the most ability to hurt and harm you, whether it's them actually actively hurting or harming you or just something happening to them hurting or harming you. Having any kind of love or closeness with other human beings in that way is opening yourself up for the ultimate pain. And that's where it really messes with us. That's perfect, because that's, that's actually his next comment. His next comment is, I think it's telling that in a lot of these movies that contain occult practices, that the most horrific aspects tend to be domestic and not spiritual. And I, th I think this film is a good example of that when we think about the relationship between Joseph Solomon and Sophia. That's interesting. Yeah. I think the occult elements, honestly, are, are um, I don't want to say trendy. They're, they're transgressive in Judeo-Christian society. And so you see these themes pop up a lot in literature at times when um, the fabric of the society is, is being debated in some significant way. For example, it's no accident that the start of the horror genre as we know it today, Frankenstein, um, comes out of uh, Mary Shelley, who was, um, you know, obviously related to Percy Bysshe Shelley. And uh, if you recall him, he wrote a famous tra anti-religious tractate and was a seminal member of the, of the um, sort of religious skeptic movement of his age. Um, and it's no accident that you see these, that, that you see these sort of these, these themes of, of occult horror pop up during times when religion is being questioned as a social force. And I think that the spate of occult movies in the modern era is certainly due to, to religion being center stage again in many ways, with a lot of people questioning its relevance or whether its relevance is about to take a dive in a way that is culturally consequential. Um, and so I think that's more than anything, more, more, than, more than what it's saying about us you know, on a psychological level, I think it just speaks to where we are in terms of a cultural aesthetic moment. We're at a point where not only is occult more acceptable than to talk about than it has been in past times, but we're also against a framing uh, where, you know, not necessarily expressing a concern about religious extremism so much as simply um, conversing as to whether one particular religious extremism, which is, you know, the Judeo-Christian type, is losing its hold on our society such that now it's oh, the occult is okay in a way where you know I'm sure we all remember the moral panics of past years. Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical of the idea that it reflects necessarily um, something about organized religion or or the occult as such. I, I I definitely think though that you know it's it's very rare where trends are just trends. You know, they they're speaking to something. They're resonating with people on some level. So it could be that. I don't necessarily have, I think, a strong hypothesis as to what exactly it is uh, that, that that's resonating with people in the broader sense, uh, you know. But uh, a hundred different, you know, uh, think pieces have been written about like why, like the vampire trend and the zombie trend are are, are so uh, so hot, and you know, people have different and incompatible answers. But you know, I I I, I definitely sort of am attracted to the idea that that there is a larger significance to it. I don't know if off the top of my head I can put my finger on what I think it is though. 
Well, I, I think Antonio nailed it. It's uh, contrary to the newsboys. Uh, it's God's dead. That's that's really what it is. He's not truly alive, and we know that because more occult movies. Yeah, but I think I, I think the, 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 I mean again not to, to, to diss on Antonio, but the problem with that is that again that's not a new theme, right? I mean that that theme has been around at least since the days of Nietzsche, and the, the, arguably there have been periods where things like uh, the, the occult has has gotten hot and sexy, and especially again Victorian England, right? Um, but why why the recent trend? You know what explains it? I mean, I guess maybe maybe the perception wrong. Maybe it isn't a recent trend, but I, I I share the idea that it does seem like there are more movies like this, at least since you know, the turn of the millennia or something like that. And if that's the case, what is it about? You know, the post two thousands. I mean, you know, is it the, is it something about nihilism or the Bush years or what? I don't know. Um, maybe now that, uh, that Trump is in power, there's some sort of you know, like a political uh, uh, something. Yeah, 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 whatever. We're, we're we're all really hoping that occult things are like real parts of the world so that we can get Trump out of office. I think that's like we're just what abramalin procedure can we do? to A, get Trump out of office, and B, kill the folks who hurt share his puppy. That's the only thing I'm interested in after tonight, so. Yeah, um, when, it, when it comes to cults, I, I recall a lot of people mentioning the fact that cults, um, that's pretty much what a lot of religions started out as in a way, right? It's just a small group of people believing in this, this thing and it spread to make it bigger and, it, and there's people that crack jokes that it starts out as a cult when there's just a few people that believe it, but when more and more people believe it, it becomes a religion. And so maybe because so many people are turning away from uh, certain religious viewpoints now, maybe the occult thing is the best way to go after that, you know? Like what new thing can people come up with or what old thing can people go back into and, and try out? So, I mean, maybe it's just a, a sign of our times when people are turning away from religion but still wanting something to hold on to. I mean, I've, I've, I've read a, a lot of interesting books about, you know, religion and atheism um, as far as, like, atheists having a, a particular tradition they might want to hold on to or possibly wanting to have an atheist church or wanting to have, like, these uh, traditions that they could just be a part of. I, I mean, even the Church of Satan has little elements of this where we just want to have this community and and to be able to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and, and to be a part of a tradition that we could pass on to our children and in a way to, you know, tell people how to be moral and have a code. Um, so maybe these cult elements are just a way of trying to hold on to that part of our humanity, which has been around for thousands and thousands of years. That's really interesting. Yeah, we're like, I think you're totally right, Cher. Like we're, we're increasingly fractured people, I feel like. Um, and I think the more technologically innovative we get and everything, I think the more we're finding ourselves isolated from one another. Um, and so I think appeal, there is an appeal to those sort of group, um, those, those sort of situations in which we can have groups anymore. And that, that may be a thing of the past in one day in the future, you know? Um, so more than that also, I think, um, that although we have ceased to believe in God or there, although there is, you know, there's a strong body of evidence that, that the Western world is ceasing to believe in, in the organized religion, God, um, I think that we also don't want to stop believing in magic a lot of the time. We want to believe that there is sort of an empirical way to access the mystical. And what is the occult if not an attempt to be an empirical way to access the mystical? A process by which you can achieve a consistent result by tapping into spiritual forces. You know, and this is, and, and if you think about it, it's not, not only in a, a strictly occult sense, but in a broader sort of just general woo sense. 
this is quite prevalent in our age. You know, there's yoga and aromatherapy and, you know, getting your chakras aligned and curly in photography. And LSD. <laughs> well, that, that's not that's not a joke. Oh, that, she was she was excited about that one. Wow. <laughs> but no, that's it's true. Really like they're quest you. But that that is a part of, like that's a part of uh, people wanting to try LSD. Yes. It's this connection and to honestly, the bigger thing. LSD, I would I would argue, is something that is that is akin to natural magic. Like if you've ever tried it, it really is something that will kind of make you believe in magic. It 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 does alter your experience in a way that that is foundational and and life changing, frankly. Um, and and yeah, and so we 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 this appeals to us the idea that that there is some mystical reality that we can access through an empirical process. And as we lose our fear of experimenting in that direction, with the as the fear of God dissipates, our lust for magic will increase, and our and the diversity of ways in which we attempt to reach for it will probably increase as well. Yeah, Mr. Cam Cam says uh, perhaps it's the symbology and mythology that people are attracted to. We live in an increasingly scientific world, and maybe viewers are trying to reclaim some kind of art that is purely emotional. So it's a science, science, science reaction. Yeah, I, I, I'm in a lot of atheist circles, and people try to talk about, oh, the the beauty and awe of science or the beauty and awe of nature is enough for me, and I'm like, but there's so much more when you read a story where the magic happens like it's so fun and you know when you read mythological stories or when you have a guardian angel pop up at the end to surprise you and it's majestic as fuck you're like this is really fantastic it makes you feel good and there's nothing wrong with enjoying that and i think there's a a huge amount of uh there's a huge amount of people in the atheist movement that tend to and if you want to call it that, the atheist movement, they, they tend to want to be like Vulcans who don't have any kind of emotion over anything. And if you have any kind of emotion that makes you have a flaw or something's wrong with you, and um, that if you aren't enjoying something magical or some mythological story, like you can't enjoy life as much. I, I hate that stone cold, non-emotional aspect of it. I think we need to... I think we need to open our hearts to something fun and something interesting and something big, um, even if it's not true. You can read a, a fantasy story and still gain something from it and still enjoy it. You don't need to necessarily believe it to be a fact, but to suspend that, you know, and just be able to live in that moment. It's just kind of fun, you know? Yeah, the next time you hear a, a video from Aaron Ra or a Richard Dawkins monologue about the beauty in the universe, just just let them finish and then just look right back and say, but have you ever seen a unicorn? Like, they're just gorgeous. Have but you have ever, you ever seen a guardian angel? There you go. No, there you go. You, you've never seen a miracle. <laughs> Does anyone in this room know what I'm talking about, that line? Okay, it's a couple of you do, a couple of you do. Never mind. The rest of you will get it eventually. That was beautiful. I love it. Do you guys have anything else you guys want to add before we uh, close up shop? I have one more thing I'd like to bring up. We don't have to go too much into it, but um, the guy who plays Solomon, um, if you look at his background and what he's always worked on, it's been a lot of comedy stuff, you know, like the Mighty Boosh and stuff like that. Um, I found that this is a common theme in people that I really like in horror movies is that they're normally actors that are known for comedy or they're normally writers that are known for comedy 
and then they do a horror thing and it it really fits well for me and i just want to see if you guys have any like thoughts on the connection with comedy and horror um there's like a darkness to things that make me laugh i i know that most of the things that make me laugh are things that come from a really horrible place or something bad that has happened to me and i have to try to find humor to get through it and to like cope and in a way horror has a similar kind of feeling for me you know to cope with this stuff to see crazy stuff happen to other people it, it's there's coping to that too do you guys see a connection between comedy and horror and comedians doing horror really well I'm, I'm a little more cynical in that regard. Um, my take on that is that um, I do agree with you. I agree that, um, in, and I would say that this extends beyond horror to just drama in general. You know, comic actors are often the best actors. Um, they're really often really, really, really good actors. And I don't, but I don't think that this is for a reason that, you know, comedy is sort of fundamental to us or anything like that. I think it's simply that the, the process of comedy is one that involves manipulating your audience's emotions in a pretty sophisticated way. Because, because the whole point about comedy, what makes things funny is a subversion of expectations. And so in order, in order to be a good comic, you have to be kind of like a magician. You have to, you have to set up your audience's expectations and sort of misdirect them in one direction and then insert a punchline which subverts those expectations, and then that's then the audience laughs. And I think that this is uh, this this is something that you can this is a skill that you can exploit in non-comic situations to similarly sort of have an intuitive grasp of how people emotionally react to various setups and situations, such that you can you can um, use comic talent in a wide variety of of uh, artistic endeavors that and really sort of bring it home in each of them you know I, I don't like his comedy honestly but um Jim Carrey in dramatic roles is brilliant and the reason and and in scary roles he's terrifying and the reason is because precisely he he knows how to manipulate that that element of uh your audience reaction he's sensitive to that in a way that that maybe is a little higher and more sophisticated than your average actor. Well, probably especially now that he's gone like all full, like rust coal on us, you know? I, I, I've enjoyed Jim Carrey's work, both comedic and dramatic, but I've never found him scary in anything he's done. I, I can't think Cable of- Cable guy. Cable guy. Cable guy. Yeah, of, of a different kind of scary. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of any strong connection, at least performance between performances of people who have been done both comedy and uh, horror. Uh, but I think you know, evolutionarily speaking, both humor and fear are pretty deeply uh, rooted, deeply hardwired. They're both human universals. Every culture laughs. Every culture gets afraid. Um, so I, I, I'm behind a lot of what Antonio says about the sort of emotional significance and the nuance and the ability to control those emotions and evoke those emotions um, uh, being sort of related in a pretty deep way. Uh, I just can't think of anyone who's actually put that theory into practice off the top of my head. Well, the main thing that made me think about it was get out, uh, you know, a comedian, a known comedian put together a very scary film to me. That was a very horrifying film, had a lot of social implications to it as well. Um, and I thought it was so well done. And I, and I can't help but think like, these comedians, they could tap into my fears a lot better than, you know, people that are supposed to be known for their horror, you know? Yeah, maybe there's a well that they're reaching into a little better than everyone else, you know? That's interesting. Here's something I'm curious about. I mean, again, this might be a little topic, but 
there's you know there's lots of like you know comedy horror films you know uh, uh, but I, I if a, a real test for this thesis I think would be a film that could transition from presumably from comedy to horror so it starts off clearly as a comedy and ends not as a comedy at all just ends as a horror film that I think would be a really interesting artistic achievement let's write it let's do it <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah, so I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head I can't think of any that starts as a comedy but ends as a legit horror film? Yeah, that would be, I think, a fascinating experiment in filmmaking right there. Well, there you have it, folks. If someone's out there, you're the, you'd be the first to do it well. Let's, let's make it happen. So let's, let, yeah. Uh, anyone else have anything they want to say before I close up shop? <laughs> Copyright free ideas. Yeah, I was just going to say copyright that shit. Cool. I'll, uh, I'll I'll start. I, I selected this film by by rating it. Um, I uh, by uh, selecting it rather. Um, I I think I'll probably give it an eight across the board. I think that um, cinematically, I thought it was it was well done. It was a chamber piece. Everything was close together. That I just those are my films, man. My films are you're locked away. There's a couple people they can't get out, and they got to explore something. They got to explore hate or greed or some some human emotion that comes out. Um, and that's, that's the first thing that I need for a good horror film that makes me, that makes me go, oh, it's, I, I like that one. Um, this one had, um, it, it, it had, it peppered the jump scares in a way that was perfect. I, we always shit on, on modern horror films for just being all about jump scares, but I do think there is a time and a place to do them. And I think this film did it well, and, and even in a way that we've seen in other horror movies, right? I, I've even seen this in Doctor Who where the candle goes out. You see a glimpse of a monster, and then it goes back. But this, this I was not expecting. It was so psychological for so long that when it happened, I just didn't expect it. And the same sort of thing with the end, with the angels. So I think overall, uh, the film is very unique. Um, it, it, you really earn it. It's a very slow burn. It, it's a very atmospheric film, and it's all about pace and tone. Um, and I think it's up there with The Witch in terms of the quality of the pace and tone. It produced a lot of anxiety and, and tension in me when I was watching it. I, I watched this film uh, during a day where I decided to tackle three new horror films from 2017. I think I watched uh, The Black Coat's Daughter, um, and then one other film, and then this one, and this one stood out to me by far as, as the one that had the most impact on me. Um, specifically with that ending. So I'm going to give it like an eight across the board, but I do think that this film holds it for me as the best film of this year so far. And, and I'd even go so far as to say better than Get Out and better than Raw. Um, I think Get Out was fantastic, um, but I think the uh, is better than Mother also. Yep, I think it was definitely better than Mother. Um, uh, it, it just hit all of my points that make a movie... It's scary to me and make me think about him and it, it puts that stone in my shoe after the film is over where I think about it um, and this had that um, yeah so I give it an eight across the board um, did you but and I'm really curious as you guys rate the film if you've seen a better horror film this year than this one and if so what it is so add that to your score here um, but I'm gonna give it an eight solid eight across the board I'll go I guess um as far as the fear factor, you know this is going to be high for me. <laughs> Man, this hit all of my points. Uh, this is a nine on the fear factor for me. Uh, you had a woman who was being um, objectified and used. You had a woman who lost her child and had to hear his voice and had to hear him terrified and needing help after all the shit she had gone through. 
you had someone who died in a bathtub and was brought back to life. I mean, there's so many elements that scare the shit out of me um, that this just hit, this hit <laughs> for me over and over again where I had chills and I was like, no, no, stop it, movie, no. Um, as far as how good the film was, I will give it an 8.5. This is really, really scary. This is probably one of the scarier movies I saw this year. I don't know. I haven't seen Mother yet. Um, I've heard good things about it. I, I feel like I need to still cover some other films, but this is definitely way up there for me. Um, it is it is a really, really... I'm so glad you recommended it, Noah. It was really, really fantastic. But now, even more so, I'm excited because now we know exactly how to get to you. Is We will get a mansion and we will lock you away with one of us and we'll just hang out for about a month and do LSD together. That sounds both fun and very horrifying. So yeah, <laughs> good point. Antonio, I want you to go first because I want to I close out. All right. So the elements that I thought were, were very strong in the movie, the, the visuals were very strong. Um, it was beautifully shot. Um, the camera didn't move around too much. It was a it was a lot of static shots for the most part. Good editing, um, good cinematography, good sound design, good soundtrack. Um, especially that cello rasp that Shayra keeps mentioning. Um, the acting was on point. The dialogue was very good. The script was pretty solid. Um, I really enjoyed that they did not overpopulate the movie with characters. I really enjoyed that they did not overpopulate the movie with with exposition and dialogue. Um, I thought it was just about the right amount of talking. Nobody was too much of a gas bag. Nobody gave too much away early on. Um, it was a movie that it's a movie that respects the viewer's intelligence, which is always something that I really like. Um, you know, you were definitely supposed to figure stuff out for yourself, pick stuff up by implication. It didn't spell everything out for you. It didn't, you know, recap everything at the end of the movie to make sure you got it. Um, so overall, a really, really strong movie. I can't, I don't watch a whole lot of movies, honestly. So I can't say that it was, uh, you know, that it was the best movie of this year because I haven't just, just haven't seen that many horror movies this year. Um, but it was an, a very good movie. Um, I think the ending suffered a little bit um, and, and could have gone, you know, in, in a more interesting direction, um, as I've said before. Uh, and that's really the movie's major weakness. There's a couple little quibbles here and there about, you know, the, the way they set various things up and frame stuff. But for me, uh, the scene, you know, where they chop her finger off and then the, the very ending of the movie um, are the two weak spots in an otherwise really brilliantly executed and gripping production. And so um, overall, I would give this an eight. It's really, it's thought provoking. It's disquieting as far as the fear factor. As I've said before, I don't exactly get afraid of movies, but um, movies that make me think afterward and stick with me are, and disquiet me are sort of scary movies. In that sense, this was a reasonably scary movie. I'm I, I will sit with this and mull it over a little bit afterward, but I'll be mulling probably the first two thirds of the movie over more than I will the, the way that it actually wrapped up. So ultimately an eight, which I think is exactly what Noah gave it. I think I would give it an eight and a half. Um, I, I thought the film, again, again, technically the film was, was very well done. Um, the, I, I loved the ending, as I said, with the, the Guardian Angel. Um, solidly acted, interesting themes, interesting concepts. 
Um, what's preventing me from giving it sort of a, from higher marks is, uh, I mean, while again, I thought the tone and the atmosphere was good, it, it, it didn't really scare me. I mean, I don't scare easy necessarily, but, uh, you know, for that is, I think, an important measure of a good horror movie. If it's one that actually sort of gets you and the viscera, and then and this one just didn't quite. Uh, um, it it, it cap captured my attention, uh, but it didn't quite scare me. Um, and then also, I felt that so, it, there were some missed opportunities with some of the themes that could have been better explored, like the theme of, uh, of abuse uh, and control, um, which was definitely there in, this, in the second act, but again, I think kind of disappeared by the third. Um, how it compares with other movies. Um, I think that, uh, that Get Out is a better film, but not a better horror film. I mean, as a horror film, I think that Dark Song was better, but uh, Get Out wasn't just a horror film. It was a sort of a, a film with a message, a film that sort of tapped into something which, you know, is obviously sort of uh, very, very uh, uh, timely. Um, and and again, it comes back to this idea that, you know, it's kind of astounding that there hasn't really been uh, uh, any horror films told from the the, the black uh, black uh, African American experience, you know, sort of thing, and that's something that's sort of when I when I caught drawing my attention, it's like, wow, yeah, how has this never been done before? This is this is something that it's it's really uh, you know amazing. It's taken us this long for someone to to come out and do this, and it was done really well. So Get Out was a better film, Dark Song a better horror film. Um, haven't seen Mother, but I, I also don't think I would give uh, 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 a Dark Song best horror film. Best horror film for me has to, so far, has to go to It, but that's in large part because I'm just, I'm such a huge Stephen King fan. I love that novel so much, and I think the film did about, did, did it about as good as any film possibly could. I, I would be surprised if any other filmmaker could have adapted that source material uh, better uh, than the version that we got. So so that for me still is probably gonna, is gonna take the prize uh, so far, but here's hoping that uh, the, the, the remaining uh, two, three months of the year has some surprises in store. Definitely do not watch uh, me and Shaver's review of it. I'm actually putting it on private right now, so you can't watch it. You are not allowed to watch our review of the new 2017 Ed film. Uh, cool, guys. Um, so uh, tune in next week. Next week we're doing a, a kind of a different it's it's really the closest thing to just not being a horror film at all. It's it's 2015 film The Lobster, right? It's Jonah's film, and this is one of those films that just speaks to him in a way that horrifies him. I've watched some of it today, and I, I I'll hold it off for next week. But it's a very different. It is I, I say that every other week. I feel like I'm always saying, "Oh, this is a different film." No, The Lobster, that one wins. Very different. So we're doing The Lobster next week, 2015, and then the week after that, we are doing. Uh, I can't, we're going all the way back about a hundred years, <laughs> 95 years to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920 German silent film. Uh, and then I think after that, we're going to take a break for a week. So, uh, yeah, join us next week, the lobster week after that cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, check us out on our social media. We're in the process of finalizing our website, uh, deadlyanalysis.com. So right now that goes to our YouTube channel, but we're going to have a full website up, uh, by Halloween. So check it out. Um, and thank you guys so much for joining. It was great to see Luna and Mr. Cam Cam. And so we've got a lot of viewers popping in and out. This was really awesome. So uh, thanks for watching. We'll see you guys hopefully next week.